when we think about church, um, there's uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of things that come to mind, I'm sure. Um, but I want to take a couple minutes before we dive into our, our reading and, and study in First John, and I want to look at uh, some reasons, some whys. Like, what's the point of this group of people getting together um, and, and being in the same room? What's the point of us having the institution of church? And the first and primary reason that this exists, the, the thing that makes this uh, anything at all, of course, is Jesus. We exist because we are Jesus followers. More importantly, because we are Jesus' children. And, and so we, we exist, we gather together to worship him, to adore him. But um, we also uh, are called. Jesus says that, uh, he talks about the, the Christian life as a growing experience. And he says that, uh, well, Paul says that we're like newborn babes when we first uh, become Christians. But there's a growing up that happens. And Jesus calls that discipling. And he asks us to make disciples. And, and that uh, responsibility is uh, an important part of the getting together. We're like big brothers and big sisters to uh, some other people in our congregation. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you've got big brothers and big sisters. Whatever the scenario is, God calls us together as kind of a family, and he calls us to disciple each other and to grow each other. And uh, then, of course, you might remember Jesus' statement about the Ten Commandments. Somebody asked, what's the greatest? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But then he adds, the second is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And God has called us together to be good neighbors in our community, to care and love for the people that we're involved with, that we uh, do work around, that we live nearby, that we interact with at the grocery store. And, and of course, good neighbors to those of us who are part of this church body. And, and then there's also a, uh, a command. Jesus says it right before he ascends to heaven. He says this to the disciples. He says, go, go teach, go baptize, go disciple. And he's given us that call to go into our community, to care for people and to draw them towards Christ. Um, so these are the, the main things, the, the reasons we exist. We exist because we're Jesus' children. We exist as a community to disciple each other and grow each other up in Jesus. We exist as a community to, to be good neighbors, and we exist as a community to reach our, our community for Christ. Does that sound like a good reason to exist? Those are, these are the fundamentals, the reasons why church exists. So if you've come because you uh, really enjoy the preacher, no problem, I'm not offended, uh, but that's not the reason we're here. <laughs> And if you've come and you really don't like the preacher, that's okay, I'm still not offended, but that's also not the reason why we're here. Um, the preaching time is an important aspect, but it's not the reason. We, we're here to worship, definitely. But we're also here to gather and disciple and to, to be sent out into our community in love and, in, and for the gospel. Anyway, just wanted to keep that in front of you. Um, I might bring it up again every so often just to remind ourselves why we come and, and gather together. Do you remember that time when you were in diapers? <laughs> I don't. Some of us have forgotten those years. 
Maybe you are that cooing little baby that, that got the, 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 the mama singing and lullabies to you as, uh, as they cleaned you up. Or maybe you were that wiggly kid that heard the um, stop moving and as, you, as they had one hand on your chest and the other hand wiped you. I, I don't know exactly what your baby experience was like. Do you remember the long days of childhood? You remember those days when your imagination had a million things going on and you tried to play them all out? And it was the dolls and houses and mud cake kitchen baking things. And and then there was the the pine cone grenades and the the wooden swords. It, It was when you were told to sit still, it felt like every minute was an hour. But, but when you had to go to bed, it just seemed like the day went so fast. Do you remember adolescence? Remember that time when your body seemed to be waging war against you and all the wrong things seemed to be going on? When you had to go out in public, there'd be some kind of eruption on your face, right? The, the adolescent changes, uh, things were different, the voice changed, the new paraphernalia in your wardrobe, right? Like, weird things going on. Do you remember your teen years? That time when being popular was so important to be liked by your peers. You had new strength and vigor and invincibility and the frustration of being not quite an adult but oh so close. The in the, the moving into high school, the getting a license, the choosing a career path. Do you remember that first job? You landed that job, you're so proud of yourself, but you're also pretty nervous because you weren't sure what to expect. And then when you got into it, you realized that that life was not as carefree as it used to be, and you kind of longed to be a child again. Yeah. Do you remember falling in love, marriage, your first baby? Remember when your kids were in diapers? When they were running around with stick swords, when they were standing with you in the Walmart aisle choosing a trainer bra? Do you remember when he called girls from school? Do you remember sending them off to their first job, packing their car as they left for the last time to be in their own home? Do you remember the emptiness of your home without kids? The experience of having to find a new purpose and meaning beyond parenting? The changes in your body as it started to wear out. Do you remember training younger people who you know would replace you pretty soon and then planning for retirement? Do you remember when your spouse breathed their last breath? When the doctor told you that you really shouldn't be driving anymore? When your kids called you and said, it's time to start thinking about some assistance and maybe not living on your own anymore? Life is full of change, transition, the seasons of life. That's just a part of of being alive. We all go through seasons of life. And we're at the beginning of a study in 1 John, and last week, and he introduces this stages of Christian growth. He wants us to, I think, consider this growing, changing life of a Christian. And admittedly, 
First John is a mixed bag of ideas. It's full of all kinds of interesting stuff. Chapter 2 is kind of all over the place. But I think that there is a thread that ties all of the ideas together. At the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, uh, John says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love that word propitiation. Any word you read in the Bible that makes you go to the dictionary is a fun word. Do you agree with me on that one? Just curious. <laughs> no? That's okay. Propitiation. Um, it's a word that is not used very often. And, and it makes sense that it's not used very often. Uh, it, it could be translated atonement. Jesus is our, the thing, the, the person who makes us at one with God. That's the idea of propitiation. There's another word, that, another way that it could be translated, though, and that, that is that it's a, um, a gift to appease gift to appease. Jesus is God's gift to the world. You see that there? Not just for us, but for the whole world to draw us to him. We don't necessarily need to be appeased, but our hearts do need to be drawn to God. Jesus is that propitiation, that drawing, that at-one-ment. And uh, John goes on in, in first chapter, I mean, in, in chapter two, he goes on to talk about all kinds of things. He, he talks about how important it is to know God. And he talks about this not so new command to love your brother. Um, and then he contrasts loving each other with this um, love for selfish, self-seeking, self-idolizing, self-pleasing worldliness that he describes. And he says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he's, he warns us about false teachers and about false prophets and those people who deny Christ's humanity or his divinity. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. And finally, in uh, 1 John 2, 28, he says, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children." There's this, uh, it seems like, mixed bag of ideas in chapter 2. But here's the, the thread that ties them all together. It's right in the middle. In your Bible, it might look a little different. It might be um, kind of indented or something. It looks like poetry, maybe. And that's because it is poetry. And it's unique. It's, it's not in any other part of, of John. It's not really poetic, except for right here. And I think it's imp important that... It's a little different. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you, are, you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do you notice how it repeated the same thing twice? A little bit different, but pretty much the same thing twice. And that's a, a hallmark of Hebrew and Greek poetry, uh, that repetition, that uh, kind of dual um, thing, saying the same thing, maybe a little differently, but saying it twice. Now, some people, scholars and theologians, and I just want to let you know I'm not a scholar or a theologian, so I, I give some credence to what they say, but um, I'm going to tell you I, I'm going to disagree with this one. Um, they, they say that John, he's like, he's kind of bashing on the church. He's like, 
If you don't walk in the light, you don't have fellowship with the Father. And then he says, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the Father, you don't have fellowship with the Father and you're not saved. And if you don't love your brother, then you're not saved. And if you don't, right? And he, it sounds like he's bashing on the church. And so this is kind of this happy reprieve where he stops and says, well, really I'm talking to those people that are, are false teachers and antichrists. Um, I know you, you know the Father and you have overcome the evil one and you have been forgiven, right? So it's kind of this moment of encouragement right before he takes another swing. And I'm just going to say no, no. I mean, would, would, does it make sense that John, the loving John, who just his heart beats with Jesus' heart, he just was best friends with Jesus, would it make sense that John is, is um, with one hand swinging at you and with the other hand patting your back? I don't think so. I think there's something here that, Paul, that John is trying to, he, he wants us to look at everything else he's writing through the lens of this little poem. This poem that, well, let's just look at it a little bit. Children, these are, are the newborn Christians, uh, the uh, recently accepted Christ or the, the, the newly baptized, the initiates. And, and John says to them, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake and you know the Father. I mean, why else, would, uh, would they, why else would they come to Jesus unless they knew the Father, right? Unless they knew that God's grace was available, why would anybody say, I want you, Jesus? And so as soon as somebody confesses to God and says, I want you in my life, um, the promise is your sins are forgiven. And so the, these are known by their, the status of forgiven. But then he, he, he jumps on to this idea of parents, uh, and, and it's interesting, he goes right to, to fathers. Now, keep in mind, children, fathers, young men, he's talking to the whole church. Um, I don't know exactly all the details about why the culture worked the way it did and, and stuff, but he's, he's writing at his time to young men and fathers, but it's perfectly appropriate for us to apply that to young women and mothers too. So I just put youth and parents on this little slide. But the next thing he addresses are parents. And uh, these, of course, aren't actual parents he's talking about. Not, not that they're not parents, but that's not his point. It's not about that they had actual children, but there's a spiritual component here. Um, th these parents, he says, John calls them, um, identifies them, rather, by their knowledge of God. They know the one who was from the beginning. And as a result of knowing God, they're the ones primarily responsible for passing on that knowledge to others and making new Christians, right? These are the primary disciple makers of the church. And then there's the youth. And even though youth comes after childhood, that's the progression, um, John address, addresses the youth last. These are known by their strength, by their vigor, by their victory over evil. And it's no surprise that these young, young people are identified as abiding with Christ. Because how else do you have victory if you aren't abiding with Christ? Unless you're abiding with Christ, how can you have spiritual strength? So abiding with Christ and all these things that they describe about these youth, they, they connect, right? There's the reason that they are able to do these things are because they're abiding with Christ. Now, Again, John isn't talking about the years that you've been a Christian. So I've been a Christian for 70 years. 
I'm a parent, you know. I've been a Christian for just a, a few weeks. Um, I'm a baby, right? Uh, I've been a Christian for 15 years. I must be a youth. That's not really where he's going. He's talking about the characteristics of a person um, who is maturing in their Christian walk. In fact, at one point, Paul talks to the church and he says, you should be grown up by now and eating the meat of the word, but we've got to feed you milk like you're a baby still. There's a little bit of chastisement. Like maturing is something we not just do automatically. It's something we choose. It's something we're involved with. Um, and, and so I'd just like you to take a moment and think, where are you in this spectrum, this maturing process of the Christian life? Are you a newborn that's just figuring out the basics of your faith? Every new discovery in the Bible is like this light bulb aha moment and you're excited about it. Um, everything that you see in the Bible is some new picture and beautiful thing about God. Is your Christian experience characterized by that Constantly recognizing your sin, coming back to God and saying, so sorry about that, <laughs> please forgive me and cleanse me. Um, are, are you in that cycle that First John 1 talks about? Confess your sin and he'll forgive you. And if you sin, you have an advocate. Confess your sin and he'll forgive you. Is that your, your pattern? Well, I think in a way all of us have that pattern, but especially a newborn Christian starts to experience that because you see, you keep seeing new things from God's word and recognizing your life doesn't align. And so you keep confessing and keep going back to God. Or maybe you're in the prime of your Christian experience and many of the struggles of your spiritual childhood are distant memories. You've overcome addiction and temptations. You've mastered Bible study. Things are making sense. You've found a place in service. And, uh, and yet you recognize that you're not there yet. You look around and you're like, that person is mature. I'd love to have the kind of calm and confident faith that they have. And you, you want a deeper walk with Jesus. Now, some of you may humbly recognize that God has given you a place of spiritual responsibility. Uh, you're a leader in the church. Your years of experience with Jesus uh, have given you a significant knowledge of God, of the Bible, and you're able to communicate that effectively. And, and whether you have a, an actual leadership role or you lead by example, um, you, there are people that look up to you, you, you disciple, and, and that you've brought to the Lord. Um, you would be one of those mothers or fathers in the church, an elder statesman, a, a wise counselor, a kind mentor. Where, where are you in that spectrum from childhood to maturity? The seasons of life, the maturing process, I think this is the lens that John wants us to look at everything else he's writing through. If we, if we read something, he wants us to see this process and recognize that process in what he's writing. So let's go back to John chapter 2 and verse 3 and kind of look through some of these concepts that John has presented with this lens of maturing in mind. John chapter 2, verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Knowing God and obeying God are two sides of the same coin. That's what, what John is saying here. We don't begin our Christian walk, though, with perfect knowledge or with perfect obedience. 
It's a growing experience. We learn to know God and we learn to follow him. There's this maturing process that, that John is talking about. And uh, when you think about what he says in 1 John 1.10, he says, if anyone says that he hasn't sinned, then he makes God a liar. Then you recognize that what he's, he's talking about this seems like perfectionism idea. Like if you um, say you abide in him, then you better do what he says. You better walk in the same way that he walked. And if you look at your life and you're like, wait, I'm not walking exactly as Jesus walked, then you might start to worry that maybe I'm not at all with Christ. Maybe my life is, maybe I'm lost. And that's not where John wants us to go. What he wants us to recognize is, I'm maturing. I'm in a growing process. And maybe I'm a newbie and I, I, I'm, I haven't even learned to walk yet spiritually and I keep stumbling over my own feet, you know, falling on my face. God, he's not, he's not saying you're lost in that scenario. He's saying you're a baby and don't worry because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And here's the title of my sermon today, Righteous. John is not telling us that the little children are righteous. He's telling us that the advocate, Jesus, is righteous. And because Jesus is righteous, we can take our sin to him, confess our sin, and guess what he'll do? He'll forgive us, and he'll wipe the slate clean, and he'll say, try that again. Just like a parent who's watching a child learn to walk. No condemnation, just love and affirmation. Now, there's a point. If you're still crawling when you're a teenager, you got a problem, right? There's a, there's a maturing process that's expected. God's not asking us to stay in one place. He's asking us to grow more and more like him. And I, and I would suggest the more times we go through that experience of confessing and learning about God and recognizing our sin and confessing and learning more about God, and, right? The more times you go through that process, the closer our lives begin to align to the life of Jesus, in fact, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, being, that's an ongoing process, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By beholding, by spending time with Jesus, we become changed, transformed. So our lives begin to look more like Him. Back in 1 John, though, 1 John 2.6 John says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you notice that phrase, that word abide? This isn't John's word. John's just borrowing it. Who do, who do you think he borrowed it from? Jesus. John chapter 15, he remembers this word that Jesus used when they were sitting around that table in the Last Supper, and Jesus is talking to them and giving them all this advice. And one of the things he says is, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide. What's the fruit? What's the fruit of abiding? According to 1 John, the fruit includes things like obedience to the law. When we want obedience in our life, the invitation is to abide. If you look at your life and you're like, it's not lining up with Jesus, um, instead of stressing out about that, confess your sin, let him forgive you, and focus on the abiding part. 
It's the time with Jesus, the looking at Jesus, the consuming the words of Jesus, thinking about Jesus, praying to, listening to the voice of Jesus, always coming back to Jesus when we've strayed into sin. Abiding transforms us bit by bit. And, and sometimes you just feel like, I wish this was done. Like maybe Paul, when he was frustrated and he prayed for this thorn in his side to to, to disappear. I'm not sure what that was, whether it was a sin or something else, but um, a lot of us have those things in our lives where we just wish it would go away, a struggle that we have that just keeps tripping us up and tripping us up. And what, what God invites us to do is to surrender that to him, confess it, and abide. Abide in Jesus. Jesus once said that there were two great laws, Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's not really a surprise when John takes this idea of knowing God and abiding and bearing fruit to this next level in, uh, in verses uh, 7, um, 8, 9, and 10. And he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in verse 6 and then verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There's like this connection between obedience to the law and loving your neighbor. They're inseparable ideas. I mean, this is the law of love, right? And so if it's the law of love, then love should be the characteristic of obedience. And it's worth noticing in John chapter 2, verse 11, where John says this, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness. Notice how many times he says darkness. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Three times in one sentence, he says darkness. Whoever does not love his brother is in darkness. You can't be a child of God and hate your brother. That's what John is saying, which makes a bunch of us cringe a little bit because we have grudges that we hold, bad feelings that we have towards family members, maybe towards friends that used to be friends, maybe now enemies. We have grudges that we hold against people, and we have reasons for those grudges. I mean, they're good reasons, right? Your, your grudges have good reasons. You wouldn't have them if they didn't. And yet, here again, the maturing process. As a new Christian, you might have some of those grudges, um, but uh, as, you, as you explore the Bible and spend time with Jesus, you start to recognize that Jesus didn't have grudges, and you, you start to realize that your life is not lining up with his life, that you're holding those grudges, you're holding those negative feelings towards people, and, and Jesus wouldn't have you, you recognize that Jesus said to bless those who curse you and forgive the people who use and abuse you. And, and you read when Jesus was on the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And, and maybe your own heart is struggling with that because you just don't even understand how you can forgive. But as you mature in your Christian walk, God will take you through that process, and probably many of you have gone through that process already, of, of looking at and processing those hurts and, and disappointments and pains and all the things that have caused you struggles in your life, and he's brought you to the point of forgiveness for those people. Now, if you don't know what forgiveness looks like yet, I just invite you, spend a few minutes looking at Jesus 
on the cross. Look at the last few chapters of John and Luke and Matthew and Mark and, and just read those chapters and see what Jesus did. And what you'll see is a picture of forgiveness. And, and if you're still holding a grudge towards somebody, uh, some hatred in your heart towards somebody, then I just want to point out that the maturing process that God is taking you through is going to slow down until you're able to say, Lord, I'm willing for you to, to take that grudge that I have, that hatred that I have away. I'm willing to forgive. And if you're not willing to forgive, you're going to be sitting in that spot for a little while in your Christian experience. Jump ahead, John chapter 2, verse 15, and John starts applying this maturing lens to the idea of pleasure. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These three ideas, three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the, these are the main things that trip us up. They, they um, draw us into greed and into pride and into um, lust and into all kinds of other problems. But they're not really hard to distinguish when you compare them with the life of Jesus. When you're reading the Bible, you start to recognize, wow, I really am coveting my neighbor's fill-in-the-blank, <laughs> right? When you're reading the Bible, you start to realize your own selfish intentions and your own pride and, and, and that the pleasures that you pursue are not in line with Jesus. Several years ago, I was in a small group with a young man, and I won't tell you his name, uh, but really neat guy. He was dating a girl who was a Christian, but not nearly as invested in growing as he was. Um, he kept coming to this Bible study, and, and he would come in clothes that were kind of leaning towards Gothic. He loved to play the game Dungeons and Dragons, the, uh, the board game. And he had these really expensive uh, figurines that, that they would use for the game, and, you know, the, the, the coolest board. And, and um, he even bought, like, extra packs of these spell cards and stuff and, and uh, the high-end stuff. He was really into Dungeons and Dragons. And he didn't see any conflict with his faith in Christ. And he'd grown up a Christian, but he was kind of having this new experience where he was interested for himself now as a teenager. And, uh, and so he's got Dungeons and Dragons and he plays all these, um, you know, shoot 'em up games uh, on, on his, uh, uh, whatever the, the uh, console was back in the day. And, and when you listen to his music, if he's listening to something on his headphones and, and you hear it, it, it's some pretty dark stuff. That, that was his experience, but he kept coming to this Bible study and uh, at one point, his girlfriend, and, and uh, we'd been praying for him because uh, he was kind of not really growing. And then at one point, his girlfriend said, you know, I'm not really into this like you are. And she left him. And it was like uh, uh, everything transformed in this young man's life in just a matter of a couple months. Um, he, he started to question the music he was listening to and had, had this conversation. I didn't bring it up, but he asked me to come and hang out with him one day. And he says, uh, what do you think about this music? And he started playing something for me, and I, I asked him, well, what do you think about it? <laughs> and you could see that he was recognizing it wasn't in line with what he was studying in the Bible. 
And, and then he, one day he said, I, I decided to stop playing Dungeons and Dragons. And he had this whole group of friends that would play with him. So he didn't just give up Dungeons and Dragons. He gave up that whole group of friends. And that was a big struggle for him. He, he got rid of his paraphernalia for all of that stuff. And, and one day he walked in and uh, he had had these, this long kind of disheveled hair and baggy clothes that were, like I said, kind of leaning gothic. And, and one day he came in and he was wearing clothes that fit, and he had a clean-cut uh, look, and it was just like a completely different person had emerged. As he spent time with Jesus, his love for Dungeons & Dragons, his love for this music, this love for this girlfriend that were distractions from his walk with Jesus, they diminished as his love for Jesus grew. He ab- was abiding with Jesus, and that maturing process transformed him. There's three aspects of the Christian walk that John talks about. Three ideas that just keep coming up over and over and over again. Knowing. Knowledge of God is essential um, in, his, in his idea. Know God. If you don't know God, you can't abide with him. Know God. And then obedience. If you know God, then you'll be walking like he did. And then love. Because obedience and love, they, they're not separated. You can't separate those two ideas. Now, if I, I think this idea of knowledge, um, if you have knowledge without obedience and without love, it's really not a good thing. You know, you, you've heard the saying, um, he knows too much for his own good. Sometimes that's the reality for Christians. You can be an amazing theologian, know all kinds of data and details about God and the Bible and church and whatnot, and, and not actually be obedient or loving towards God or other people. You can be a theologian and not be saved. You could be obedient and, and have everything right. I mean, you, you pay tithe, you observe this Sabbath or whatever you would. Um, tell the unvarnished truth. You don't have any idols. You're sexually pure. Everything, all down the line, you can say, um, I'm obedient. And yet you can have harsh words towards people and be unkind and, uh, and honestly not even understand what God is, is asking of you in obedience if you don't know him, right? If you're... If you have one of these without the other two, you're going to be off kilter. You can have just such a wonderful um, way about you, this love. You're all about love, equality and affirmation and living well with others. But, but it can be at the expense of truth and righteousness. And as a result of your, I mean, your, your so-called love can actually be encouraging beliefs and behaviors that lead people directly away from Jesus. So John has these three ideas just tied together like a wheel. And if you think of the Christian life like a wheel, this is a bicycle wheel. Um, If you think of the Christian life like a wheel, just kind of rolling down the road, um, maybe as a newborn Christian, you you don't have all of these things going for you. And and you you move a little slower as a result. And the more you know and the, the, the more you follow Jesus, the more that love grows in you because he, he's abiding in you as you abide in him. The, your, your wheel, your, your direction down that path of Christ, kind of, it starts to, to speed up a little bit. And as a, a young person, a young Christian, um, you're, you're really gaining some strength and gaining speed. And by the time that maturity sets in, you're just humming down the road. This is who you are. 
these things, these aspects of your life have grown into you. And, and, and so people will look at you and say, wow, she really reflects the character of Jesus. Wow, I can see God in him. Do, do you notice that wisdom and that diplomacy that he has? That's, that is so cool. I want that too. And that's the mature Christian experience. How many of you feel like you're mature Christians yet? <laughs> we all have some growing to do, don't we? Um, John happens to be the author of the book of Revelation. And if you look at the book of Revelation, he, he takes this mature Christian experience and he kind of takes it to the end of time uh, moment. And he talks about this group of people that he says um, have the Father's name in their head, in their mind. His character is written in them. And it says that, that they don't have any deceit in their mouth, that they're, they're truthful and honest people. And, and the key feature I, I love the most, it says that fo- they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the mature Christian experience. The completely surrendered, I'm going to let Jesus do whatever He wants in my life. I'm going to follow Him wherever He goes. I'm going to let Him put His character in my mind. Now there's one last section, and, uh, and it's really quick. It's the section about the Antichrists. And if you look in, in verses... Um, 18, uh, John says it this way. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. The, the last hour, it's the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We're in the last hour. And at John's time, those Antichrists were false teachers that were following a, a Gnosticism, and Gnosticism had a couple branches, one that taught that Jesus was really... Um, a divine being, and he didn't die on the cross. He just left his body on the cross. Um, that, that this divine being um, was never actually born a man. He just kind of showed up to look like a man. That was one of the teachings of Gnosticism. And there's some weird stuff in there too that we won't get into. And the, another branch of this taught that Jesus was actually only a man, that he was never divine, but that in his perfection, that he, he achieved perfection in his humanity. And as a result, he was kind of a superhuman and he was able to represent the human race on the cross and die on our behalf. So the, these two false theologies were kind of prevailing at the time of John. And these he called antichrists, because in his mind, they rejected the source of their salvation. Um, in, in 1 John 4, 2, he addresses one of, that group, one of those groups. He says, by this you know that the Spirit of God, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in, in John's mind, if Jesus isn't fully human, the Son of Man, then he can't be our Savior. He can't have walked in our shoes and he can't represent us as a race. But, but then this other branch that says that um, uh, Jesus was fully human and had no divinity, um, he addresses them in, in verse 22 of, of chapter 2. And he says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You remember, the, the only way that we can have forgiveness at one minute with Christ is through the, through the work of Jesus. And if he isn't our Savior, if he isn't both God, the Son of God, and man, the Son of Man, then we've got no hope. And so John addresses these two groups, and he says that those are antichrists. They reject 
But, but then he says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Do you notice that word abide again? Abide. When we say, God, I want you, when we abide with Jesus, it's in the word, it's in prayer, it's in time with him, it's in thoughts about him. When we abide in Jesus, then he promises that he'll send his spirit to abide in us. And, and uh, you know, to be honest with you, every Christian, at, at some point, you're going to face heresy. You're going to face some false teaching. And you have the option of following some teacher who's left the church because they think this or think that. You have that option. But, but what Jesus is inviting us to is to surrender the Holy Spirit, to go to God's Word, and to study diligently, and to let the Holy Spirit lead us. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the church today that are teaching false, false gospels. Some accept Jesus, deny the power, uh, but the, deny the power of the gospel in their lives, and they choose a, a, a works-based, self-actualized religion. Others take their eyes off Christ, focus on some unique prophetic interpretation that nobody else seems to quite understand, and, and their focus is diverted Others focus on a particular standard of behavior and make that their one thing about their Christian experience. But uh, John's advice is to simply go back to the Bible, rely on the Holy Spirit who has promised that he will lead us into all truth. So John, um, John he, he goes kind of here and there and yonder and stuff, but he has this one focus, this one theme of maturing, the maturing Christian experience. And there's three things that we learn. First of all, Christian growth. It's a process. Secondly, knowledge, obedience, and love. These are things that are kind of the, the, the wheel of the Christian experience. Each spoke needs to be there or we end up flat on one side. And then there, there's all kinds of problems as a result. And then thirdly, trust the Holy Spirit. Let him be your guide as you study God's word and he will lead you into all truth. All three of these points have one thing in common, abiding in Christ. We can't grow unless we abide. And when we abide, we grow in knowledge. When we abide, we grow in obedience, and we start to reflect the love of, of Jesus. Just kind of like Moses spending time on the mountain. Do you remember that story where he came down and they said, please cover your face because it's shining too much. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more our lives begin to shine like his. So where are you with your Christian experience? Are you a little child, a young person, a mature Christian, a parent figure? More importantly, where are you with Jesus? Are you abiding with him day by day? 